Section 8 of The Lives of the Queens of England, Volume 10, by Agnes and Elizabeth Strickland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Mary Beatrice of Modena, Chapter 11, Part 1. The next trial that awaited the fallen queen was parting from her son. The Chevalier de St. George was compelled to quit Saint-Germain on the 18th of August. He went to livery in the first instance, where a sojourn of a few days was allowed previous to his taking his final departure from France. The same day Mary Beatrice came to indulge her grief at Chalot. The following pathetic account of her deportment is given by our Shiloh chronicler. The Queen of England arrived at half-past seven in the evening, bathed in tears, which made ours flow to see them. It is the first time, said the Queen on entering, that I feel no joy in coming to Chalot, but my God, added she, weeping, I ask not consolation, but the accomplishment of thy holy will. She sat down to supper, but scarcely ate anything. When she retired to her chamber, with the three nuns who waited on her, she cried as soon as she entered, Oh, at last I may give liberty to my heart, and weep for my poor girl. She burst into a passion of tears as she spoke. We wept with her. Alas, what could we say to her? She repeated to herself, My God, thy will be done. And then mournfully added, Thou hast not waited for my death to despoil me. Thou hast done it during my life, but thy will be done. The nuns were so inconsiderate as to mention to the afflicted mother some painful reports that were in circulation, connected with the death of the Princess Louisa, as if it had been caused, rather by the maltreatment of her doctors than the disease. Alas, the poor doctors did their best, replied Her Majesty. But as your king said, they cannot render mortals immortal. The day after her arrival at Chalot, Mary Beatrice found herself very much indisposed, and her physicians were summoned from Saint-Germain to her aid, but their prescriptions did her no good. Her malady was the reaction of severe mental suffering on an enfeebled frame, and the more physic she took, the worse she became. On the morrow, everyone was alarmed at the state of debility into which she had sunk, and her ladies said, one to another, she will die here. One of her physicians, more sagacious than the rest, ordered that the portrait of her daughter, which was on the buffet with that of the Chevalier de St. George, should be removed out of her sight, for the eyes of the bereaved mother were always riveted upon those sweet familiar features. At last, grief found words again. The sick queen sent for Lady Henrietta Douglas to her bedside, and confided to her a vexation that had touched her sensibly. The funeral oration for the Princess Louisa, on which she had set her heart, could not take place. The court of France had signified to her that it would be incompatible with the negotiations, into which His Most Christian Majesty had entered with Queen Anne, to permit any public allusion to be made to the exiled royal family of England. Therefore, it would be impossible for her to enjoy the mournful satisfaction of causing the honors and respect to be paid to her beloved daughter's memory, which were legitimately due to her high rank as a princess of England, sharing the blood royal of France. The maternal pride of the fallen queen was deeply wounded by this denial, which was the more grievous to her, because she had naturally calculated on the powerful appeal that would be made, 
by the most eloquent clerical orator in Paris, to the sympathies of a crowded congregation, in allusion to her own desolate state at this crisis, and the misfortunes of her son, an appeal which she fondly imagined would be echoed from Paris to London, and produce a strong revulsion of feeling in favor of the Stuart cause. It was for this very reason, the political use that would be made of this opportunity by the expatriated family of James II, that the French cabinet was compelled to deny the gratification to the afflicted queen of having a funeral oration made for her departed child. This mortification, then, said Mary Beatrice, must be added to all the others which I have been doomed to suffer, and my only consolation in submitting to it must be that such is the will of God. A needless aggravation to her grief was inflicted on the poor queen at the same time by the folly of the nuns in continually repeating to her the various malicious reports that had been invented by some pitiless enemy relating to the last illness and death of her beloved daughter. It was said that her majesty had compelled the princess to make her last confession, contrary to her wish, to Père Gaillard, because he was a Jesuit, that she had caused her to be attended against her inclination by her brother's English physician, Dr. Wood, who is styled by our shallow authority, Monsieur Aude, and that the said Aude had either poisoned her royal highness or allowed her to die for want of nourishment. Mary Beatrice said, that it was strange how such unaccountable falsehoods could be spread, that she had allowed her children full liberty in the choice, both of their physicians and spiritual directors, from the time they arrived at years of discretion, that her daughter had earnestly desired to be attended by Dr. Wood, who had done the best for her, as regarded human power and skill, and as for allowing her to sink for want of nourishment, Nothing could be more cruelly untrue, for they had fed her every two hours. Her majesty, having been a good deal excited by this painful discourse, went on to speak in praise of the Jesuits, more than would be worth the trouble of recording, and which came, as a matter of course, from the lips of a princess educated under their influence. Not, she said, that she was blind to the faults of individuals belonging to the order, as an instance of which, she added, that the late king, her lord, had caused her great vexation by giving himself up to the guidance of Father Petre, admitting him into his council, and trying to get him made a cardinal, that the man liked her not, and she had suffered much in consequence, but did not consider that the intemperance and bad conduct of one person ought to be visited on the whole company, to which she certainly regarded him as a reproach. Such, then, was the opinion of the consort of James II, of Father Petre, such the real terms on which she acknowledged to her confidential friends and religious uses of the same church, she stood with that mischievous ecclesiastic, with whom she had been unscrupulously represented, as leagued in urging the king to the measures which led to his fall. Neither time nor Christian charity were able to subdue the bitterness of her feelings towards the evil counsellor, who had overborne, by his violence, her gentle conjugal influence, and provoked the crisis which ended in depriving her husband of a crown, and forfeiting a regal inheritance for their son. 
William, Mary, and Anne, and others, who had benefited by the revolution, she had forgiven, but Father Petre she could not forgive, and this is the more remarkable, because of the placability of her disposition towards her enemies. While she was at Chalot, some of her ladies, speaking of the Duke of Marlborough in her presence, observed that, his being compelled to retire into Germany was a very trifling punishment for one who had acted as he had done towards his late master, and that they could never think of his treachery without feeling disposed to invoke upon him the maledictions of the psalmist on the wicked. Never, exclaimed the fallen queen, have I used such prayers as those, nor will I ever use them. Her majesty continued sick and sad for several days. She told the nuns, she had a presentiment that she should die that year. Her illness, however, ended only in a fit of the gout, and we find that, at the end of a week, she was up and able to attend the services of her church at the profession of a young lady, to whom she had promised to give the cross. The ecclesiastic who preached the sermon on that occasion discoursed much of death, the vanity of human greatness, and the calamities of princes, and created a great sensation in the church by a personal allusion to Mary Beatrice and her misfortunes. The Queen of England, he said, had given the cross to the probationer without wishing to lose her own. She had chosen that convent to be her tomb, and had said with the prophet, Here will I make my rest, and forever. Here will I live, here will I die, and here will I be buried also. Everyone was alarmed at hearing the preacher go on in this strain, dreading the effect it would have on her majesty, in her present depressed state, combined with her presages of death. But to the surprise of everyone, she came smiling out of the church, and told Monsieur de Sulpice that she thought the preacher had been addressing his sermon to her, instead of the new sister, Agatha. The next day, when her son, who had been alarmed at the report of her illness, came from Livray to see her, she repeated many parts of the discourse to him. The Chevalier had been so much indisposed himself, since his departure from Saint-Germain, that he had been bled in the foot, and being still lame from that operation, he was obliged to lean on his cane for support, when he went to salute his mother as she came out of the church. The gout having attacked her in the foot, she too was lame, and walking with a stick also. They both laughed at this coincidence, yet it was a season of mortification to both mother and son, for the truce with England was proclaimed in Paris on the preceding day. They held sad counsels together in the queen's private apartment on the gloomy prospect of affairs. The abbess told him, Sire, we hope your majesty will do us the honor to dine with us as your royal uncle, King Charles, breakfasted when setting out for England. That journey will not be yet he replied dryly. He dined alone with the queen, and returned in the evening to Livray. On the following Friday, he came to dine with her again at the convent, dressed in deep mourning for his sister, and went to the opera at Paris in the evening, on purpose to show himself, because the English ambassador extraordinary for the peace, St. John, Lord Bolingbroke, was expected to appear there in state with his suite that night. Of this circumstance, one of the absent ministers of the Council of Saint-Germain thus writes to an agent of the party in England. Among other news from France, we are told that Lord Bolingbroke happened to be at the opera with the Chevalier de Saint-George, 
where they could not but see one another. I should like to know what my lord says of that knight, and whether he likes him, for they tell me he is a tall, proper, well-shaped young gentleman, that he has an air of greatness mixed with mildness and good nature, and that his countenance is not spoiled with the smallpox, but on the contrary, that he looks more manly than he did, and is really healthier than he was before, and they say he goes to Chalons. It was a remarkable mistake about the Chevalier de St. George, not to be marked by the smallpox. That malady marked his countenance in no small degree, and destroyed his fine complexion. The queen and nuns, it seems, amused themselves, after the departure of the Chevalier, not in speculating on what impression his appearance was likely to make on the English nobles, who might chance to see him, but how far it was consistent with a profession of Christian piety to frequent such amusements as operas, comedies, and theatrical spectacles of any kind. Mary Beatrice said, She was herself uncertain about it, for she had often asked spiritually-minded persons to tell her whether it were a sin or not, and could get no positive answer. Only the Père Bordelieu had said thus far, that he would not advise Christian princes to suffer their children to go off into such places, and when they did, to acquaint themselves first with the pieces that were to be represented, that they should not be of a nature to corrupt their morals. On the Tuesday following, Mary Beatrice went to Livray to dine with her son. She was attended by the Duchesses of Berwick and Perth, the Countess of Middleton and Lady Talbot, Lady Clare and Lady Sophia Buckley. The Duke of Lauzun lent his coach for the accommodation of those ladies who could not go in that of their royal mistress. The once stately equipages of that unfortunate princess were now reduced to one great, old-fashioned coach, and the noble ladies, who shared her adverse fortunes, were destitute of any conveyance, and frequently went out in hired remises. The visit to Livray is thus noticed, in Sir David Nairnay's private report to one of his official correspondents. September 1st. Wisely the Queen was here today, and dined with Kennedy, that is the Chevalier, who is in better health, and heartier than I ever saw him at Stanley's, that is Saint-Germain. Her Majesty and her ladies returned to the convent at eight o'clock in the evening. The Chevalier came to dine with his mother again on the Sunday, and the Marquis de Torcy had a long conference with him in Her Majesty's chamber. When that minister took his leave of him, the Chevalier said, Tell the king, your master, sir, that I shall always rely on his goodness. I shall preserve all my life a grateful remembrance of your good offices. The luckless prince was, nevertheless, full well aware that he had outstayed his welcome, and that he must not linger in the environs of Paris beyond the seventh of that month. He came again to Chalot on the 6th to bid his sorrowful mother a long farewell. He was entirely unprovided with money for his journey, and this increased her distress of mind, for her treasurer, Mr. Dickinson, had vainly endeavored to prevail on de Marais, the French minister, through whom her pension was made, to advance any part of what had been due to her for the last six months. The Chevalier, true nephew of Charles II, seemed not a whit disquieted at the state of his finances. He thanked the abbess of Chalot very warmly, for the care she had taken of the queen, his mother, and engaged, if ever he should be called to the throne of England, to make good a broken promise of his late uncle Charles II, 
for the benefit of that convent. He talked cheerfully to his mother at dinner, in order to keep up her spirits, and described to the nuns, who waited upon her, some of the peculiarities of the Puritans, such, he said, as feasting on Good Friday. The Chevalier drank tea with Her Majesty, and when they exchanged their sorrowful adieu in her chamber, they embraced each other many times with tears, then went together to the tribune, where the hearts of the late King James and the Princess Louisa were enshrined, and there separated. Mary Beatrice wept bitterly at the departure of her son, her last earthly tie. He was himself much moved, and tenderly recommended her to the care of the abbess of Chalot and the nuns, and especially to Father Ruga, to whom, he said, he deputed the task of consoling her majesty. He slept that night at Livray, and commenced his journey towards the frontier the next morning. In three days, he arrived at Chalon-sur-Marne, where he was to remain, till some place for his future residence should be settled by France and the Allies. The negotiations for a general peace were then proceeding at Utrecht. Lord Bolingbroke, during his brief stay at Paris, for the arrangement of preliminary articles, had promised the long-withheld jointure of the widowed consort of James II should be paid. Mary Beatrice had previously sent in a memorial, setting forth her claims, and the incontrovertible fact that they had been allowed at the Peace of Ryswick, and that the English Parliament had subsequently granted a supply for their settlement. Some delicate punctilios required to be adjusted as to the form in which the receipt should be given by the royal widow, without compromising the cause of her son. Should the queen, observes Lord Middleton, style herself queen mother, she supposes that will not be allowed. Should she style herself queen dowager, that would be lessening of herself, and a prejudice to the king her son, which she will never do. The question is, whether the instrument may not be good without any title at all, only the word, we. For inasmuch as it will be signed, Maria R., and sealed with her seal, one would think the person would be sufficiently denoted. Our counsel here thinks she might sign herself thus. Mary, Queen Consort of James II, late King of England, Ireland and France, Defender of the Faith, etc. The last cause was certainly absurd. The simple regal signature, Maria R., was finally adopted after the long protracted negotiations were concluded. Mary Beatrice remained at Chalot in a great state of dejection after the departure of her son. The Duchess Dowager of Orléans, Elizabeth Charlotte of Bavaria, came to visit her towards the latter end of September. Her Majesty probably considered herself neglected at this sad epoch, by other members of the royal family of France, for tenderly embracing her, she said, What, madam, have you given yourself the trouble of coming here to see an unfortunate recluse? Monsieur and Madame de Beauvilliers came soon after to pay their respects to Mary Beatrice. She had a great esteem for them, and they conversed much on spiritual matters and books. Her Majesty spoke with lively satisfaction of having received a consolatory letter from Fenelon, Archbishop of Cambrai, in which, without entering into affairs of state or politics, he had said, that he prayed the Lord to give the king, her son, all things that were needful for him, and that his heart might always be in the hands of the Most High, to guard and dispose it according to his will. Although neither wealth nor dominion were included in this petition for her son, the royal mother was well satisfied that better things had been asked. 
when monsieur and madame saint sulpice came to pay mary beatrice a visit in her retreat they told her they had heard that the scotch had made bonfires on the birthday of the chevalier saint george and shouted god save king james the eighth and had burned a figure which they called the house of hanover it is true replied the queen and a little time before they burned the prince of hanover in epigy but that signifies nothing our friends expose themselves too much by it none of them however have been punished it is to be wished madam replied her visitors that these crimes would augment sufficiently to give a turn to the fortunes of your son mary beatrice spoke little at this crisis of what was passing in england but her looks were closely watched one evening it was observed that she was laughing very much with her ladies over a packet she was reading with them she afterwards told the curious sisterhood that it was a paper ridiculing all that had been printed in london about her son she also told them of a political fan which had a great sale in england where it was of course regarded as a jacobite badge the device was merely the figure of a king with this motto chacun a son tour on the reverse a cornucopia with the motto peace and plenty mary beatrice spoke very kindly of queen anne whom she styled the princess of denmark and appeared distressed at the reports of her illness she requested her friends to pray for her recovery and conversion adding it would be a great misfortune for us to lose her just now the circular letter of the convent of chalot on the death of her own lamented daughter the princess louisa being finished mary beatrice wished to be present when it was read she wept much at some passages but gave her opinion very justly on others where she considered correction necessary they had said that the princess felt keenly the state to which her family and herself had been reduced by the injustice of fortune ha cried the queen but that is not speaking christianly meaning that such figures of speech savored rather of heathen rhetoric than the simplicity of christian truth they altered the sentence thus in which she had been placed by the decrees of providence that is good said her majesty she desired them to alter another passage in which it was asserted that the princess was so entirely occupied at all times and places with the love of god that even when she was at the opera or the play her whole thoughts were on him and that she adapted in her own mind the music songs and choruses to his praise with internal adoration this mary beatrice said would have been very edifying if it had been strictly true but she thought her daughter was passionately fond of music songs and poetry and took the delight in those amusements which was natural to her time of life though she was far from being carried away by pleasures of the kind the nuns appealed to pere gaillard if it were not so but he replied that he could only answer for that part of the letter which he had furnished namely the account of the last sickness and death of her royal highness mary beatrice then sent for the duchess de lauzun who had been on the most intimate terms of friendship with the princess and asked her what she thought of the passage the duchess said that if they printed it it would throw discredit on all the rest for none who knew the delight the princess had taken in songs and music and had observed that when she was at the opera she was so transported with the music that she could not refrain from accompanying it even with her voice 
would believe that she was occupied in spiritual contemplations on such subjects as life and death and eternity. Her Majesty then desired the passage should be omitted. The assertion had doubtless originated from the princess, having remarked that some of the choruses in the opera had reminded her of the chants of her church. In the beginning of October, Madame de Maintenon came to pay a sympathizing visit to Mary Beatrice and testified much regard for her. Her Majesty went into the gallery to receive her, and at her departure, accompanied her as far as the tribune. Maintenon promised to come again on the 25th of the month, but being prevented by a bad cold, she sent some venison to Her Majesty, which had been hunted by the king. Mary Beatrice expressed herself in reply, charmed with the attention of His Majesty in thinking of her. Madame de Maintenon came quite unexpectedly three days after, and brought with her a basket of beautiful oranges as a present for the queen. She had to wait a long time at the gate before the abbess, who was with her majesty, could come to receive her. The Duc d'Almal, who had accompanied Madame de Maintenon, was annoyed at having to wait, but she said, It was the mark of a regular house that there should be a difficulty in obtaining admittance. Mary Beatrice was much agitated, two days later, by receiving from this lady a hasty letter apprising her of the alarming illness of Louis the Fourteenth from cold and inflammation, which rendered it expedient to bleed him, an operation never resorted to with persons of his advanced age, except in cases of extremity. "'Oh, my God!' exclaimed the exiled queen, when she had read the letter." What a calamity for France, for his family, and for us poor unfortunates! What will become of us? She wept bitterly, and her ladies wept with her, at the anticipation of losing their only friend and protector, whose existence appeared at that moment inexpressibly precious to the destitute British emigrants, who were at that time dependent for food and shelter on the annual pension which he allowed their widowed queen. Inadequate as this pittance was for the maintenance of the unfortunate colony at Saint-Germain, it was rendered by the rigid economy and personal sacrifices of their royal mistress, a means of preserving several thousands of the faithful adherents of the cause of the Stuarts from perishing with hunger, and it was doubtful whether this fund would be renewed by a regent in the event of Louis XIV's death. The queen was in too painful a state of excitement to eat at dinner. Lady Middleton read to her a chapter out of The Imitation of Christ, but she sighed heavily and remained in great depression of spirits. All day she was in anxious expectation of receiving tidings of the king's health, but having none, she wrote to Madame de Maintenon at eight in the evening to make inquiries. The next morning at nine o'clock, an inquiry brought a letter from Madame de Maintenon, which reassured her. The king had borne the bleeding well had passed a good night, and was out of danger. The gratitude of the fallen queen for the shelter and support that had been accorded by Louis to her and her family and their distressed followers, and the scrupulous respect with which he had ever treated her, blinded her to the motives which had led him to confer personal benefits for political ends. How often he had played the part of the broken reed to her unfortunate consort, and disappointed the flattering hopes he had raised in the bosom of her son, she was willing to forget, or to attribute to the evil offices of his ministers. Mary Beatrice gave her royal friend credit for all the generous romance of feeling 
that formed the beau ideal of the age of chivalry the experience of four and twenty years of bitter pangs of hope deferred had not convinced her of her mistake one of the nuns of chalot told mary beatrice that she was wrong to imagine every one was as free from deceit as herself your own nature madam said she is so upright and truthful that you believe the same of the rest of the world and you do not distrust any one but god who is good knows the wickedness of human nature and i could wish that your majesty would sometimes feel the necessity of a prudent mistrust it is true replied the queen that i never suspect ill and that i have not the spirit of intrigue that belongs to courts nevertheless madam rejoined the religieuse your majesty through the grace of god acquired in your adversity a wisdom that all the cunning and intrigue in the world could never have given you that of conciliating and preserving the affection and confidence of the king your husband he knew said the royal widow how much i loved him and that produced reciprocal feelings in him a few days after this conversation mary beatrice said she could not think without pain that the time of her departure from the convent drew near and that she must return to saint germain to that melancholy and now desolate palace her tears began to flow as she spoke of the loneliness that awaited her there alas said she picture to yourselves the state in which i shall find myself in that place where i lost the king my lord and husband and my daughter now that i am deprived of my son what a frightful solitude does it appear i shall be compelled to eat alone in public and when the repast is ended and i retire to my cabinet who will there be to speak to there here i find at least a little society i had thought to remain here always i have spoken of it to the pairs ruga and gaylar and i asked pere ruga to entreat for me enlightenment from god on this subject but he has told me i ought not to think of it i must therefore make the sacrifice and leave this retreat on which i had fixed my desire for it will not be permitted me to enjoy it i have not continued her majesty relied on the opinions of pairs ruga and gaylar alone i have consulted madame maintenon and the duke of berwick and all are of opinion that in the present position of my son's affairs i ought not to retire from the world in fact that i ought to remain for some time at saint germain not for any satisfaction that i can find in the world for i have experienced this very day a severe mortification which has touched me sensibly mary beatrice did not explain the circumstance that had annoyed her but said i have written to the king my son about it and see what he has sent in reply she then read the following passage from the letter she held in her hand it is not for me madam to make an exhortation to your majesty that would be great presumption on my part but you know what saint augustine says non preventitur ad sumum palum etiam insolentio nisi cum magno strepita pugna vit cum motibus suis which means explained her majesty who appears to have been a better latin scholar than her friends the religieuses that one cannot even find peace in the silence of a cloister if one does not fight manfully against carnal inclinations she did not read any more of the letter but only said that 
Although her son had not the brilliant talents of the princess his sister, he had solid sense. But my daughter, continues the fond mother, had both the brilliant and the solid, they were united in her, and I may say so without vanity, since she is no more. The Chevalier was an excellent correspondent, and wrote many pleasant and often witty letters to cheer his sorrowful and anxious mother in his absence. End of section 8